This is post Snyder Cut. You know, there are moments where nothing is the same again. And, you know, post Snyder Cut, I don't think this is one of those moments where, <laughs> where there's this big change, which is really what, like, was what Warner Brothers and HBO Max was trying to convince us, that our lives are going to be different once we saw this movie. And I watched it, and I, I really, I don't know. It's definitely an improvement. It's an improvement. I, I did catch myself taking a nap around the two-hour mark. And I've, I've gotten into some, some arguments with people because I tell them that it's better than Endgame because I thought Endgame was a bad movie. Infinity War is good, but Endgame I thought was really bad. And there's outrage. And I tell everyone, like, just because you love that little last scene at the end, that does not mean this was a great movie. So we got a few things to talk about. We got the Snyder Cut to talk about. We got my submissions to talk about. We got my uh, my plan for agents. We got my my just overall writing kind of scheme thing going forward now. Now that I'm kind of in this kind of really good groove, when I, I when I get in a groove, I really get going. And we got Lord of the Rings to talk about. And where are we going to go first? We'll start with this Snyder Cut first. Being someone like myself that's really into like television writing now that I really television is really like my passion, like even though I'm writing short episodes because I think that's how television works best, it's still the long format mentally. I take that approach of the long format because once you finish an episode or finish a script, you know more writing's coming, you know there's more storytelling coming, so I, I've always had issues with the short format. And in my mind now, the short format is films as opposed to television, which can be, you know, hundreds of pages of writing and hundreds of minutes of storytelling. And that's really where I'm at. So this Snyder Cut thing, you know, a four hour movie, I mean, they must have really been desperate to allow Snyder to get away with this, to, to allow him to come back and do what he did on his movie. I mean, Scorsese's the only dude who has the courage to try to make every movie three hours. Like, if you watched, uh, what's that recent one he did on Netflix, uh, The Irishman? Uh, that movie felt too short. Even though it was long, as far as uh, information output and uh, the way the narrative was given to us in those kind of flashback drips, it felt too short. Like, we, get, we got left wanting more information. Which is the odd thing was when you watch Justice League, once Josh Whedon took over and kind of did what he did with it, you were left having more questions than answers in a, in a, in a, in a film that was about under two hours. So we watched, I watched this four-hour movie that definitely feels like it could have been five. If it, it, there are still some things that feel rushed, but you know, Zack Schneider, that's his thing. You know, he's not really too good at, 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 you know, narrative storytelling and, you know, he's more of a visual artist and he's, he's a whiz with that kind of stuff, even though, I don't know, it's, it seems like every shot you're looking at, at least half of it is, is, is computer generated. 
But he 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 has a style for that. He has a a style that people really love, especially casual moviegoers, people who aren't really in, invested in certain aspects of films and or the way films are made or, you know, those ideas. So he does a great job. So you know, even though I don't think he's that good a director, I still love watching his stuff because they're still always fun. I you still get eye candy and enjoyment. So I, it made me really have a problem with the first movie even more. Because there were, there were things that he flushed out in this one that he originally shot that they try to not have in the last movie that made no sense. Like they, that last movie could have been shorter. Like you could have just cut this thing out. If you were going to cut the umbilical cord and say, yo, this trilogy that he's planning uh, you know, the branching off of all the characters for whatever reason, you know, you hear 3000 rumors, it looked too much like Marvel. I've been saying for a few years now that they should have just copied Marvel's blueprint as far as the way they structured the universe. And if you want to make darker, more stylized films than Marvel does, you can do that. But there's nothing wrong with still copying some of the Marvel stuff as far as the way they built the universe. And they kind of built all these movies interconnecting. I don't know why Warner Brothers didn't copy this from the jump. I know the whole Batman trilogy kind of got in the way, but they could have created a new canon very easily. They have the money. I'm sure money's not an issue, but they could have created a whole new canon with no problems, starting with Ben Affleck. The biggest mistake I think maybe they did was believe too much in Ben Affleck. To have him write, star, and direct in a Batman film was just, oh, that would have been overwhelming for the most skilled, talented person that's ever lived to ever try to do it before. And he's on his schedule and the weight of the world on his back, I think really caused him some problems. And I think it really set. DC back putting all of that on one man. Now, from what I hear, he wrote a really dope script. But if you can see, he 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 ended up the thing put him in rehab. I mean, fine, you want him to star, or you know, cool. But to have a guy star right and act in an epic action film for an iconic character, I think it was a bit too much, and I think. I think DC got lazy, Warner Brothers, they got lazy trying to just put everything on one guy and say, yo, go ahead, save this thing. Because when you watch this Justice League movie, this, the, the, the Schneider cut, it definitely, you get the sense that there were these bigger plans and they were finally going to be like, hey, we're going to follow this, this Marvel blueprint. And I don't know where it went wrong, because with the amount of money that is spent on a film like this, and the amount of planning ahead and the amount of money that gets spent to put all this thing through, I can't believe for the life of me how they just cut it. Because whether you believe in Zack Snyder's talent as a director or not, when you watch this Snyder cut, it, it made sense. It, it, it added scale to the world. It made it feel like, okay, this could work using this as the starting point and then you just branch out 
when you watch the film, it's obvious that's what they were going with. And I don't know. I don't know how his pitch went. I don't know who, you know, you, you, you can check to see who, whoever's paying the bills agreed with his pitch. But I just can't for the life of me understand why it, they gave us that first Justice League in the shape it was in. For the life of me, I, I, I can't understand it. It made the first film feel even sloppier. And you, you know, you, you can't blame Whedon now because it's obvious now he had constraints, he had handcuffs on him. He was basically probably most likely directing in name only once he got on. So I, you know, I don't, you know, Warner Brothers get a better figure this out quick. Now, I don't think Justice League is a really great movie, the Schneider Cut. But, you know, when you look on the Internet, everyone's, the, the fans are, are raving for it. You know, the, the, the people that, that Snyder really gets to touch. And there may be a lot of pressure on them now to bring Snyder back in the fold and have him really, you know, be the head of the Voltron on this thing going forward. Are they going to do it? I don't know. It depends on what this Batman, this other Batman does. Because as much as I love, I mean, Ben Affleck is my favorite actor in the Batsuit. Because I think Bruce Wayne and Batman, I separate them as characters. I don't see them as one person when it comes to live action films. In comic books, in that medium, I'll view them as one person. But in film, for some reason, when they're in the suit and when they're out of the suit, I, I kind of separate them. Because it's two different performances for the most part. And especially like, you know, like with a character like Spider-Man, we all know Spider-Man is all CGI and... You know, it's basically voice acting for the most part when they're in these uniforms. So that's why I separate the performances, you know, and I mean, he looks amazing. We finally have a big towering man as Batman. Everyone that's played Batman has been like 5'9 or something, 5'10 max, like these small men playing Batman. As wonderful as Michael Keaton was as Bruce Wayne, he was a really good Batman. But, I mean, he really excelled at being Bruce Wayne. <coughs> but Ben just excels in the suit. Now, I can't for the life of me understand why they give him these really bad lines. I get it. You know, Iron Man, for the most part, is a copy of Bruce. You know, Iron Man is, is, is Marvel's Batman. But don't have... Batman doing Iron Man-y things. Don't have him with them corny one-liners and bragging about his money. That's not Bruce. I don't, I don't like that aspect. I don't like what they do with him. I really don't. But in the Batsuit, Ben is really my favorite aesthetically. He's, he's beautiful in that suit. So I don't really know what they're going to do going forward. You know, we... You got Patterson coming as Batman. They're in a pickle. They they really seem to not understand how to integrate this world, how to integrate these characters. And they kind of pick people kind of at the height of their fame. So it's difficult to kind of get everyone in line in D.C. 
you know, when you got a guy of the ilk of Jared Leto, Ben Affleck, to play these leads, it's hard to lock them in for more than for multiple movies. And it's going to get expensive, keeping them in the fold, keeping them interested, especially if you don't do this work in a hurry. If you don't really lay out a plan for the next three, four years so they know how to schedule themselves because they're in such high demand. It's, it's important. Are they going to do it the right way? I don't know. Robert Patterson's about to be in another solar system if this Batman thing blows up. To get him in any other movie other than his Batman trilogy is going to be really, really hard. I don't see a deal where they're able to lock in a guy for five, six movies the way they got Hugh Jackman with his Wolverine thing. I, I, I don't know what they're going to do. They're going to have to have a plan, get it done fast, and move. Because who knows how long a lot of these people are going to want to play these characters. How long is Jason going to want to be Aquaman if this thing is going to take years for it to get going the right way? We still haven't gotten our Flash movie. How long that guy's going to stay interested? How long is Ezra going to stay interested in being the Flash if they don't get this thing going? These, these guys, you know, these guys all have other things going on. You know, Marvel kind of hit at the right time with their casting because being those characters elevated their careers. You know, none of them dudes were really at the, the, the apex of what they are now. They got people in there that are really, it's going to be tough to keep this thing together with these same faces without a really coherent plan where you could get all of them to buy in. And it works financially for everybody. I mean, when you watch the film, it feels like a bunch of episodes, like if you would have edited them, edited them on YouTube. That's what it felt like to me. It felt like, like, you know, four or five 45 minute episodes of something and somebody just edits them all together on YouTube so we could watch it all in one straight shot. That's how it felt to me. Which brings me back, which, you know, so I'm, I'm going to get off that Snyder thing and get to television because, you know, I'm reading about Lord of the Rings and what Amazon is doing. Amazon is going to do, is doing something that I dreamed of doing once. And I've, you know, I've talked about this for a long time, having everything mapped out, like all the seasons together. They're going to shoot five seasons in simultaneously, straight, no breaks of Lord of the Rings. They're gonna shoot 50 episodes straight. So to shoot these five seasons is basically gonna cost the same amount of money it costs for the first trilogy. By the minute, if I'm not mistaken. <coughs> we're gonna, excuse me, we're gonna have five Seasoned, shot simultaneously, so there's no canceling. This is one of the most amazing things I have ever heard of in my life. 
I cannot even imagine what this project is going to take the way they're doing it. It's, it's unimaginable. Like when I, when I thought of doing stuff like this, it, it, it felt ludicrous, but I am so interested to see how they're going to, I, I would love to see a behind the scenes making of like, they have to do that for us. They really have to. I mean, Lord of the Rings was the highest selling book in Amazon during the 90s. So Jeff Bezos holds a, a sweet spot for it. That's why he, he overpaid so much to get the rights to do this. You know, I think they outbid Netflix for it. So we're going to get five seasons. Now, I don't know how they're going to disperse the seasons, if it's going to be, you know, once a year, thing like that. But wow, I was so excited and enthusiastic about this because I want to be a television writer. So if resources like this are getting put on television or being given a television, like that is a true change of things you know streaming is like you know the wave of the future and all that i mean i mean streaming is not the wave of the future it's what it is now and you know get ready for them uh amazon prices to go up on your membership when this thing drops you know i thought it was a big deal when when you know when they shot Lord of the Rings simultaneously or when they shot the two episodes of Matrix simultaneously. I thought it was really dope and I was like, wow, they could do that on television. Like, yo, this someone's finally going to do it. So we're not going to have to worry worry about age and things like that. I I don't even know how they get a shooting schedule together. The the continuity team alone probably be 100 people. How many directors they're going to use for, I would say maybe, you can't have one director do all that. So maybe, maybe they go 10 to 20 directors. I'd be shocked if they did less than that. I mean, they're not going to have one guy shoot 50 episodes. It just, they can't get it done in time fast enough. They're probably going to have three or four or five shooting teams every episode to get this thing done. Who knows how many editors and it's, it's going to be an amazing thing when this thing comes out. Now, we don't have a release date yet. Just from a screenwriting standpoint, they have to rent out a building, like a whole building. Like this isn't a floor on a building. This isn't a loft. They'll need a floor just for their screenwriters. 50 episodes shot simultaneously. Yeesh. 15 screenwriters, maybe? And a show like Sopranos that went eight years. I think there's 30 credits on there. The teams that are going to be created to do this are going to be massive. Massive coordination, massive planning. And they're really going to just going to have to recruit the really the best people to do on this. Now, the, this thing is taking place during 
the time of the first Lord of the Rings trilogy. So this is going to be all new characters, all new people, all new. The screenwriter is going to have a massive job getting all the information they can on Tolkien, any kind of notes he ever did, anything that he conceptually worked on that he didn't write, maybe periphery characters, everything. They're going to have to learn this world front and back because it's going to be scrutinized, especially how well the first trilogy did in the movie theaters, winning a Best Picture for Return of the King. Even though I thought Two Towers was better, but Return of the King Oscar was kind of like, what you say, what you call it, like a, a, a lifetime achievement or something. Like They're giving the trilogy the Best Picture, and that's kind of how that felt. So the team for this are just going to be massive. It's, it's, it's going to be... I mean, I, I'm a, that's how I would do it. I don't know if I'd be able to put all that pressure on, a, on just a few people to write all of those episodes. The, you know, the script coordinator who's going to be heading this up is going to have a massive job on his hands. And it's going to be exciting. Like, I, I can imagine the excitement. Especially because, you know, if, if you're picking a writing team, you're going to really find some of the best fantasy writers you can. You're going to find some of the best fantasy fans you can. And not necessarily screenwriters. You know, you can, you can hire a, a, a novelist to do this kind of work. It, it's amazing work. Really exciting. I would... I'm not a, a big, as much of a fantasy fan I am, I'm not a big fantasy writer, but I don't know. This is like life work when you, when you talk about something like this. When you say you were a part of the first show that shot 50 straight episodes simultaneously and the guarantee that the show isn't going to be cut short. And when that pilot drops, you know you're going to make it all the way to the end because you already know it's there. And I would have to imagine that reshoots will happen throughout the releasing of these things. There's going to be re-editing because as the fandom reports on what they're viewing, them executives are listening, they're paying attention. I'm sure they're going to lock everybody in for some reshoots. They're going to lock everyone in. They're going to lock in writers for extra work while these things are being released. So this thing is going to be you know, probably the most coordinated, in-depth, biggest team ever put together for a television project. And I, and, and I think that's where television's going. Where This is going to be a standard-defining show. Visually, logistically, in scale, I don't think anything will compare. Now let's get back to my own stuff, you know. I've been working on a lot of projects and I finally started actually writing them and editing them and submitting them to a few contests. I think I did two last week, two, two weeks ago, and I did one this Sunday. Now, the Sunday one's a big one. That one's HBO Fellowship. I've been wanting to be a part of this HBO Fellowship probably like three years now. And I, I hadn't really been able to really be ready at the time because they give you a really small window to submit. 
you get, I think, two weeks, I think March 8th to the 21st, we had to submit. And I finally was ready, so I thought, at the time. So I, I have my writing sample ready. I wait to the very last day. I, this Sunday was such a roller coaster. I wait to the very last day. More by design other than necessity. Like I said, every time I read something, I'll change it and I'll find something that I want to change, that I want to update. So I just waited to the last minute to be ready. I wake up, give it one quick read through, put it down. I play video games, food shop, eat. About six o'clock, I get ready to apply to this fellowship that I'm completely ready for. I even made a new email address just for my submissions. So, you know, they could all come and I get caught up in all the junk. I begin the submission process. And then there were all these extra things that they asked for that I've never really been asked for before. I was asked for a resume, bio, which I had to, you know, the resume was easy, but I had to put a bio together really quick. And then I get time, it's time to attach my sample. And I notice there's an A sample and B sample. I was completely thrown off by having to submit a second sample. I know I should have read over the application ahead of time and been ready, but I was really ready for log line synopsis treatment requests, not a whole B sample. And it's six o'clock at night in the late afternoon and I have to 1159 to submit this thing. And I have to find a way to get a B sample together that's longer than 30, but shorter than 65. And boy, did I scramble. I just couldn't believe it, that I just was so unprepared after believing I was prepared. And I just, and the tough part is some of my, being that I'm doing so much television writing, some of my best samples are 27 pages. 26 pages because I'm gunning for like 24 to 30 minute episodes. So that's any, you know, that could, you know, if you, if you don't count heavy description, you're going to get about 27 pages to get 24 on screen. And I just didn't think that I could throw together two or three pages or make that level of adjustment to a story or to a screenplay where it would come off authentic and genuine and meld in in just a few hours. I just didn't feel like I could do it. And I didn't want it to be like fluff. And I thought that's what would happen, especially not being able to read it over to check it. You know, it's much easier for me to cut down than it is for me to add. I usually overwrite for me to get to 27 pages. I probably wrote 34 or 32 or 30. And then there's the cut down process and I get a little more precise with my description and with my dialogue because a lot of times I embed clues and cues to myself in the script as I'm writing just not to really break my groove. So I'll write things kind of over explained as a reminder to myself later on when I'm editing to be more poignant on subsequent edits. That's really like my style. I leave cues embedded. I don't really have a little pad on the side to kind of play with. I usually leave clues to myself in the script and I'll leave little notes in the drafts for myself. And that's really one of the main reasons why my scripts always get smaller. 
always get smaller. It's very rare I end up adding. So I had to find an old script that I hadn't touched in quite a while and basically just make sure it was grammatical. I couldn't really make story adjustments, even though I was as I was moving through it, but I really just kind of focused on grammar and I got the thing ready in about maybe three hours. And then it was time to submit. And after submitting, I felt an incredible gratification. Even though I, I've submitted not as much, you know, I've, I've done a few contests. This year I'm doing more contests. You know, last year I didn't really focus on contests and I think I kind of like, I dropped the ball on that, especially with so much dead time because of COVID, I could have been doing a lot more. But this year I came in you know, with the mindset of submitting to contests and fellowships along with trying to, you know, get producers and agents and, you know, representation. I, this year I'm, I'm going to try to do it all at once. But there's just something special about HBO with me. I, I feel they do television the best since the beginning of this modern era in television that we're in now, where television is really the height of adult programming. Adult content is really television, not the film movies anymore. A lot of the movies are like fluff and comic and book adaptations, and we don't kind of get those hard R rating, the really adult subject matter consistency any, anymore. We don't really get that. We're kind of in this PG-13 meta where we're trying to get more than two people to go at a time. So HBO was special to me. Like They hold a special place for me. And everything I've written since I started writing for television, since television has become my focus, has literally been for HBO. So to get this opportunity to maybe win a fellowship for HBO is really dope. You know, when I talk to writers, all they tell me about is how, you know, especially the people who've been active longer than me, not writing, but actively trying to shop their stuff, they talk about failures more than anything. And, and I guess to a writer, a submission without a positive response could be a failure, you know, but I'm, I'm in a really positive mind state right now. And just being ready this time to me was like a win. I wasn't, in, in, even though I wasn't ready all the way, but I was to a point where an obstacle was in front of me and if this would have been two or three years ago, I wouldn't have been ready. I wouldn't have been able to get that B sample together to a respectable point where I felt comfortable giving it in. And that's really where I've been in this evolution. It's really taken me about three years to get to this, the level where I'm at now, where I'm on point, where I could produce kind of at a faster rate, so to speak, like, you know, once I start writing, that process is fast, but it's getting to writing that kind of takes a little long. And I'm at the point now where that, that, that process from conceiving and all of the non-writing gets to the end much faster now than it ever did, ever. And I feel like that's kind of happening throughout my life anyway. Like, I'm in, a, I'm in this trend where kind of everything I kind of get going and it gets done 
and I get to move on to something else and not dwell for so long on things. And I'm at a really amazing place right now creatively. And once I'm finished writing, my mind, I mean, really for me, it's hard for me to really focus on just one story at a time. Even when I'm writing, I'll have something else outlined on the wall. Because, you know, like I've said many times before, I kind of outline on the back of wrapping paper and throw them on my wall and create timelines. I have a bunch of those everywhere. I even have wrapping paper at my job and I do some, I have some fun at work on occasion. When I have time to, some downtime like how I do now. And I just kind of get busy and get going. And I'm just really excited. And a lot of people are really excited. A lot of writers are really excited. You know, this is writing season back again after this whole COVID delay everywhere. And I hope everybody else out there is writing and working and and getting busy and not giving up, staying positive. And even if you're confident in yourself, know that there's still more to learn, more to grow with, more studying to do. Like, I think for a writer, studying never stops. One of the things people don't understand about writers is writers are usually... Well, screenwriters, you know, when people write books, they assume they're doing research, but they don't understand the level of research that goes into writing. Like when you're developing a character and things like that, like I always say that when I invent a character or I invent the world, that it is it is it is meant to mimic reality, but not be realistic. To the finest point, the way reality is. So we still, I still study human beings. You know, if, if, if I watch psychology videos, I watch interviews, I watch if a character resembles a certain type of person, I'll try to find videos. Like when I'm working on crime dramas, I'll watch as many videos as I can of criminals. You know, if, if I'm writing a story about a, a, a beauty queen, I'll watch videos of beautiful women talk about their beauty like just to get like a sense of how people function and then I'm able to have a a wider latitude to improvise on the character when I kind of when that happens you know I, I invent the character from scratch and then I'm like okay when I give them the traits they give I give them how do they function And it gets to a point where when I'm really on, when I'm really locked in, it's almost like I'm not writing the words. Like the characters are like, tell me what to write when I'm really understanding what I'm doing and I understand what I'm creating and I understand what I'm trying to accomplish. Like I don't know the words. I don't know them. They're at the tips of my fingers and... I know the words when I see them on the screen almost a lot of times, almost all the time. That's really how that works. And uh, I got six or seven more contests coming this year. And I have a whole bunch of names that I have to start emailing. And a whole bunch of screenwriters to collab with and talk to. You know, I've been getting collab requests. You know, I haven't, you know, really sent anything to someone that I, you know, but... 
tons of people want to, you know, swap scripts and read. And I, and I think that's a dope thing. And I'm kind of, I think I'm getting ready to do that with somebody somewhere. If anybody wants to, you could, you know, everybody knows my, how to contact me for the most part. And, um, yeah, that's really what it's been since I last came out. And, um, I'm going to say this again because I say it every episode. I'm going to try to not be gone for seven weeks. But I really didn't want to record again without having something accomplished. Without having submitted somewhere, gotten a piece done, progressed in some way. And really, that's the journey, you know. The Elephant's Walk kind of got this whole thing started, that pilot. That pilot is the pilot. Like, I am so connected to that, you know. This podcast is named after that pilot. And that pilot, I'm really going to really push. Like, I am so excited about it. It's gotten better and better every time I've touched it. And I have a couple of other pieces I'm working on. We'll get to that later when, when, when those pilots are done. But the elephant's walk has gone in a really, really good direction. It's, I, I've, take, I've, I've, made, I've made subtle adjustments to some of the main characters. Because the ending has the ending is a little more clearer now. I have a I have a clearer sense of what the message is for this story. So then, you know, some of the events will change. There's gonna be some adjustments. I I embedded a few extra clues that really weren't there in subsequent edits. So when you, we go back on rewatch it'll be, wow, it was kind of there the whole time. Like, I love playing that game. I ran into that thing maybe a few weeks ago. Uh, I watch a lot of anime. I always talk about all the anime I watch, and I was watching Attack on Titan because the last season's coming out. Great anime. Everyone should watch anime. Any writer, all writers should watch anime. And I go back to watch season one of Attack on Titan because it was so long ago, I feel like I'm a bit lost and... So I go back and I start watching and I start finding all the clues that they left behind for us to know and see and, and discover. And it just, it sent me kind of in a direction where I'm like, oh man, I got to do better at this. Because I, I, I love it when it happens to me on, a, on subsequent watches where I see things that I missed the last time. And I think I worked better at that on these last two edits. You know, Dante, who's the lead, really made some changes. I made some subtle adjustments to uh, to Rosalie. And um, it's going to be really great. I can't wait for this thing to get made. You know, I'm not going to really work on any more episodes on the Elephant's Walk, to be honest, until I get this next pilot done. Because I want to, I really want to get to the point where I have as many I want to get at least up to four high-level samples to submit. Where I, well, my judgment of high-level samples, I have maybe seven or eight now, but I really want them to be high-level samples that I, at the drop of a dime, I could, I could give it to anybody, anywhere, at any time, and feel confident. So I have to give Elephants Walk a little break, but um, the excitement grows every single day, and uh, you know. I'll try my hardest to be back sooner than later. This is the Elephant's Wolf Podcast. Uh, see you soon. One.